Chapter 4, Part 18 of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 10, Ingersoll's Closing Address in Second Starwood Trial, Part 18 of 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part 18. Now, here is some more from Mr. Boone. If I had not gone out, the service would have undoubtedly failed, unless they got money to put it on. When Mr. Dorsey declined to furnish any more money or to endorse any more notes, there was nothing else to do but for me to go out and let somebody else come in who had the money. That is a weakness for the government. And yet, at the time that happened, they say there was a great conspiracy, that the second assistant postmaster general was in it, that a senator of the United States was in it, and that these other men were simply tools. It will not do, gentlemen. If that had been the case, Stephen W. Dorsey would have remained here. He would have gone to Mr. Brady and said, I must have time, and Mr. Brady would have given him all the time he desired, because, according to this prosecution, it was their partnership business. Brady had ten times as great an interest as Stephen W. Dorsey. According to the testimony of Mr. Verdell, Brady had an interest of 33 and one-third percent, and according to the testimony of Verdell and Boone, Dorsey only had an interest of seven-eighths of one percent. That means, as I understand it, according to their testimony, 33 and one-third percent of the gross expedition, not profits, but of the gross expedition, that is what they swear. When he gave on a route an expedition of say $6,000, $2,000 would go to Brady each year. In other words, 33 and one-third percent of the money paid for expedition went to Brady. Mr. Walsh testified and gave the exact figures and called the amount, if the court will recollect, $60,000 and 20%. He said of that is $12,000. That had to run, he says, for three years and then make $36,000. That is the testimony in this case, gentlemen. If you should have a row of men as long as the row of kings that Banquo saw stretching out to the crack of doom and they should swear to it, I should still die an unbeliever, but that is their testimony. Dorsey ran away and left his conspiracy and Brady would not attend to his own business. Now, I read again from Boone. With regard to the preparation of circulars, the sending of them to postmasters, the printing of proposals, the printing of bonds and subcontracts, there was nothing done differently from what I had always done before. Recollect that. He is a government witness. Dorsey in a conspiracy got Boone to help him, and in helping him, Boone did nothing different from what he had always done before. There is not much left of this case, gentlemen, but I will keep going on just the same. Mr. Boone swears that he followed the regular customs and practice of doing business. Then, there is another suspicious circumstance. At the bottom of the contracts published by the government, for the purpose of informing contractors as to how the bonds or contracts are to be signed, and exactly what is to be done by each person, there are a lot of instructions. Mr. Carpenter, on the proposals. Mr. Ingersoll, on the proposals. 
when they got up the proposals of their own, they, understanding the business, left off all those directions that the government put upon its forms. Why? Those directions were put there for the benefits of men who did not understand the business. This man did understand the business, and consequently it was nonsense for them if they had to have the printing done. They put on the bottom of the contracts two or three paragraphs of directions to themselves. They understood exactly how to do it without the directions. Who left them off? Stephen W. Dorsey? No. John W. Dorsey? No. He had nothing to do with it. Minor? No. He had nothing to do with it. Who left them off? Who says he did? Was he instructed to do it? No. Did it take a conspiracy to leave them off? No. He left them off for two reasons, and good ones too. One was to save the expense of printing. That was a good reason. There was no conspiracy needed for that. The other was that knowing how to perfect the proposals and understanding all those instructions, there was no need of having them printed for their benefits. Next, on page 1582. What instructions, as a matter of fact, did Mr. Boone receive from Mr. Dorsey, if he received any? The question arises, upon what subject? In reference to what particular point? Boone says on this page that he received no instructions from Dorsey in reference to the business, except in regard to the subcontract blanks. That is the one subject on which he received any instructions from S. W. Dorsey. I have shown you that those instructions were in the interests of honesty and fair dealing. Those were the only instructions he received. On every other subject, there is not a word. Why? Here Boone gives the reason. I did not require any. Why? Because he understood the business himself. What else? I was to go ahead and do whatever was necessary to be done. He did it without consulting anybody. He did it in his own way. He did it as he thought best for all concerned. Now, gentlemen, there will be an effort made to convince you that Stephen W. Dorsey did everything during all that period. If you are told that, when you are told it, remember what I tell you now, that Mr. Boone swears that he did it himself, that he attended to the entire business, and that he was instructed by Dorsey in no particular except as to that one blank, and that I have clearly demonstrated was in the interests of honesty and in the interests of the subcontractor, so that the subcontract might agree with or be similar to the contract made with the government. That is all. Now we come to another point. You must recollect that Mr. Boone got out the circulars. Mr. Boone sent to all the postmasters to know about the rows and the price of grain and the price of labor, about the snow in winter and the rain in the spring. He got all that up. He went through the bidding book originally and made the bids. He, it was who prepared most of these proposals. He did all the work until Miner came. S.W. Dorsey did not do any of it. Boone never saw him working upon or touching the proposals. What S.W. Dorsey did, he did at Boone's request. What he did, he did at Miner's request. What he did, he did simply because he was a friend. Boone attended to it all. 
Now, what does Spoon say on page 1584? He swears that, so far as he knew, there never was any conspiracy on the part of these defendants with him, with each other, or anybody else, in reference to these roots, or any root bid for and awarded to them during that time. There was no conspiracy to defraud the government in any way. That is what the government witness swears to. A man brought here to stain the reputation of Stephen W. Dorsey? That is what a government witness swears. Swearing to, under pressure, swearing to, under circumstances where the post office department could strip him of everything he had on earth, swearing under circumstances where, if he did not please the government, they could pursue him as they have pursued us. Perhaps I had better read what he says. I read from page 1583 of my examination. Now then, so far as you know, Mr. Boone, was there any conspiracy on the part of any of these defendants with you, or with anybody else, to your knowledge, in respect of these routes mentioned in the indictment, or of any routes bid for and awarded to them during that time, any conspiracy to defraud the government in any way? And he answered, No, sir. There was a government witness, acquainted with all the transactions during that time. He was bearing under the shadow of power, with a sword hanging over his head. And yet he swears he never knew or heard of any such thing. Let us go on. On page 1589, he swears that Mr. Dorsey told him to fix the blanks and make them up and to write what he wanted done in Arkansas, and that while he Boone was engaged in so doing, he said to Dorsey, Had you not better write a note so that I can attach it to the blanks? And Dorsey did so. Dorsey told him to fill up what he wanted in Arkansas, and what was necessary to be executed there, and he did so. Boone indicated exactly what he wanted put in. I showed you the Clendenin bonds yesterday and showed you just what Boone did. He filled up the blanks that he wanted to have filled down there. Of course, the blanks that were already filled in, he did not want interfered with. That is what he says. That is another part of his testimony. I want to call the attention of the gentleman to it. I hand you, said they, 32 inks. Mr. Bliss did the handing. What was that? That was the Chico letter. What did they want to introduce that for? To show that S.W. Dorsey was interested personally in these roots in 1878. There was a magnificent piece of testimony for them to show that Dorsey in 1878 was writing to Rodell to watch the advertisements of these roots. So they introduced that letter. Mr. Poon looked at it. It was a government witness. The news was around his neck and the other end of the rope was in the hands of Mr. Bliss. What did Mr. Boone say? Mr. Dorsey never wrote that letter. Then said Mr. Bliss to him. That is not Mr. Dorsey's writing. And Mr. Boone said, No, sir. And at the same time threw the forged scrap away contemptuously. What else? On April the 3rd, 1878, Mr. Dorsey was here. Mr. Murray, was Mr. Dorsey here at that time? Witness, 
He was here, sir, and I was in communication with him on that very day. That is the evidence of a government witness, a man who was dependent upon to show that not only my client, but that Mr. Minor entered into a conspiracy in the fall of 1877 to defraud this government. I want you to remember one thing which I was about to forget. Mr. Kerr, I believe, spoke six or seven days, and I do not remember of his having mentioned the Chico letter. He acted as if it had a contagious disease. He was followed by Mr. Bliss in another week, but he did not mention the Chico letter. At least, I have never happened to read it in his speech. Both of them are as dumb as oysters after a clap of thunder. Not a word. They did not, either of them, have the courage to refer to it. They did not have the nerve to ask you to believe it. I tell you one thing, gentlemen. I would either admit that it was a forgery, or I would swear that it was genuine. I would do something with it. I would not allow that paper blown by the wind to scare me from the highway of the argument. I would do one thing or the other. I would either admit that Mr. Rudell forged it, or I would insist that it was the handwriting of Stephen W. Dorsey. Why was it left where it was, gentlemen? They could not get anybody to swear that it was Dorsey's handwriting. That is all. Now, we will take the next step. They had so much confidence in that witness that they concluded they would prove the pencil memorandum by him. They had such a clutch on him, so they stuck that up to him. Recollecting the position he was in, recollecting the danger, recollecting all that might probably follow speaking the truth. Here is what he says. Everything above profit and loss in that memorandum favors the handwriting of S. W. Dorsey. What else? And everything below favors the handwriting of M. C. Rudell. Thick conclusion for a government witness, brought here to show that Stephen W. Dorsey watched the arch conspirator, and they ended the witness, dismissed him from the stand, after he had shown that Dorsey did not conspire, after he had shown that he himself fixed the subcontracts, with the exception of only one, after he had shown that he himself filled out the blinds to send to Clendenin, after he had shown that he did everything without being advised by S. W. Dorsey. And then he swore that their principal witness was a forger. Then they dismissed him. That was the end of the government witness, who was to brand the word conspirator upon the forehead of Stephen W. Dorsey's reputation. But instead of putting conspirator there, he put the word forger upon the principal witness for the government. Magnificent exchange. Now, gentlemen, you know as well as I do that Mr. Boone knew all that was happening during that entire time. You know as well as I do that he did not swear anything for the defense that he could help swearing. What else, Mr. Bliss, on page 303, says that parties conspiring make an informal verbal agreement. When did we make that agreement? When does the testimony show that we make an informal verbal agreement? Who were present at the time? Where were we? Do you recollect the number of the house? Do you recollect the day of the month? Has any one of you ever had in his mind which side of the street that was on? What town was it in? Could you locate it if you had a good map? I do not care whether it is informal or formal. 
Did we make one? In order to make a verbal agreement, you have to use some words. Is there any evidence as to the words we used? Not a word that I've heard. Not a word. What else? He says that this is necessarily secret and intended to be secret. The first thing done was that Dossier told it to Moore. Then, for fear it would get out, J.W. Dossier told it to Panel and to 30 fellows around the campfire out in Dakota. And there was a suspicion in Brady's mind that somebody might hear of it. And so he told Rudell, he says, get the books copied. This is a secret thing. Then Dorsey wrote it to Bosler, and he was so awfully afraid that it would get out that he kept a copy of the letter. You see, Mr. Blitz says their object was to keep it secret. Then Miner and Vell told it to Rudell for fear he would not believe it, Brian Brady told him. They were bound the thing should not get out. Yes, sir. And then Rudell, just bursting with the importance of keeping that secret, told it to Perkins and Taylor, went away out there for that purpose, and then more, he gave it away to Major and McBean for the purpose of keeping it secret. Then Miner told more, from whom did they keep it secret? Nobody in God's world but Boone. He's the only fellow that nobody told. Boone went through it all, saw all the plan and heard all the whispering, and he is the only man in the country, I think, that did not suspect it. And on the 7th day of August, he left the concern because there was not a conspiracy, and admits to you that if he had had even a suspicion of it, he would have stayed. Stayed or died. Now, was there ever a conspiracy published so widely? that one end of the country kept so secret from the other? Was there ever a conspiracy like that? The news of which ran through the West like wildfire, while the fellows at the East never heard of it. Everybody knew it out on the plains. All you had to do was to subpoena a fellow that wanted to come to Washington, and he would remember it. And yet, that is the evidence that the prosecution desires you to believe. I do not believe it. I do not think I ever shall. But then they promised so much at the beginning, and they have done so little in many respects. Something has to be said. And so Mr. Blitz, on page 265, in a little burst of confidence to the jury, says, At least one United States senator was the paid agent of these defendants. Who was the senator? Mr. Blitz, did I say that, sir? Mr. Ingersoll, look at page 265 and see whether you did. Mr. Bliss, read all that I said there. Mr. Ingersoll, I will do that. But we shall show to you that at least one United States senator urging such increase was the paid agent of these defendants. Mr. Bliss, I then went on and said we should show it if you put him on the stand. Mr. Ingersoll, yes? if we furnish you the evidence. Mr. Bliss. No, sir, that is not what I said. Mr. Ingersoll. Why didn't you produce the senator? Mr. Bliss. Why didn't you put him on the stand? Mr. Ingersoll. How did I know what senator you meant? Mr. Bliss. Did you have two? Mr. Ingersoll. No, sir, and we did not have the one. If you could have proved it, it was your duty. As the attorney of the United States, to do it. And if you did not do it, 
you did not do your duty in this case. Mr. Bliss, whose name is expressed in the memorandum? Mr. Ingleson, why did you not say that to the jury? You dared not do it? That is like what was said here the other day before this jury and taken out of the record. We will come to it. These are the gentlemen who did not wish to stain the names of citizens. These are the gentlemen who did not wish to bring anybody into this case that had not been indicted. And yet Mr. Bliss, in his opening, said that he would show you at least one senator who was the paid agent of these defendants. And now, having failed to do it, he stands here before you and asks whose name was on the pencil memorandum, meaning that J. H. Mitchell was the paid agent of these defendants. Ah, gentlemen, I would not, for the sake of convicting any man on this earth, stain the reputation of another in a place and in a way where that other could not defend himself. I would not do it. I do not think there is any crime beyond that. It is as bad to stab the reputation as it is to stab the flesh. It is as bad to kill the honor of the man as to put a dagger into his heart. There are so many things in these papers that I would never get through. If I commented upon them all, if I talked 40 years, I now refer to page 4509. I have to change from one of these lawyers to the other. Now, on this subject of subcontracts, showing how we are endeavoring to cheat and defraud the government, Mr. Kerr says at page 4509, acting upon Stephen W. Dorsey's advice, he put in this clause giving the subcontractors 65% of the increase. I want you to remember the 65% because I will show you some subcontracts with that amount in, but I do not want you to think for one moment that subcontractors ever got a dollar out of it. Gentlemen, the evidence is that the subcontractors were paid the amount mentioned in their subcontracts. I believe all of them are on file in this case. And on all that were filed in the department, the money was paid directly to the subcontractor. And yet Mr. Kerr tells you that he does not want you to think for a moment that the subcontractors ever got $1 out of it. Is it possible, gentlemen, that there is any necessity for resorting to such statements? Can you conceive of any reason for doing it, except that they are actually mistaken, except for the fact that they know they have not the evidence to convict these defendants? We are not begging of you. We are not upon our knees before you. But we do want to be tried according to the evidence and according to the law. We do not want your mind, nor yours, nor yours, addressing different jurors, poisoned with a misstatement. We want to be tried, and we want the verdict rendered by you when every fact is as luminous in your mind as the sun at midday. We want every fact to stand out like stars in a perfect night, without a cloud of doubt between you and the facts. That is the kind of verdict we want. We want a verdict that comes from a clear head, and a brave heart. We do not want a verdict simply from sympathy. We want a verdict according to the evidence and according to the law. And when the verdict is given, we want every one of you to say, that is my verdict. 
I found it upon the evidence and upon the law. Dig beneath it, and it will not find used as the cornerstone a misstatement, or a mistake, or a falsehood. It stands upon the rock of facts, upon the foundation of absolute truth. Do you know that if I were prosecuting a man, trying to take from him his liberty, trying to take from him his home, trying to rob his fireside and make it desolate, and if I should succeed and afterwards know that I had made a misstatement of the evidence to the jury, I could not sleep until I had done what was in my power to release that man. And after he was released, or even if he were not released, I would go to him when he was wearing the prison garb, and I would get down on my knees and beg him to forgive me. I would rather be sent to the penitentiary myself. I would rather wear the stripes of eternal degradation than to send another man there by a misstatement or a mistake that I had made. That is my feeling. I may be wrong. It may be that I am guilty, according to Colonel Bliss, of sneering at everything that people hold sacred. But I do not sneer at justice. I believe that overall, justice sits the eternal queen, holding in her hand the scales in which await the deeds of men. I believe that it is my duty to make the world a little better, because I have lived in it. I believe in helping my fellow men. I do not sneer at charity. I do not sneer at justice. And I do not sneer at liberty. And why did he make that remark to you, gentlemen? Is it possible that for a moment he dreamed that he might prejudice your minds against the case of my client? Because I, his attorney, am not what is called a believer? Is it possible that he has so mean an opinion of a Christian that a Christian would violate his oath when upon the jury simply to get even with a lawyer who happened to be an infidel? Is that his idea of Christianity? It is not mine. It is not mine. I stand before you today, gentlemen, as a man having the rights you have, and no more. And I am willing to work and toil and suffer to give you every right that I enjoy. And I know that not one of you will allow himself to be prejudiced against my client because you and I happen to disagree upon subjects about which none of us know anything for certain. I do not believe you will, and yet that remark was made. Gentlemen, I will not say that it was made, but maybe it was, hoping that it would lodge the seed of prejudice in your minds, hoping that it might bring to life that little adder of hatred that sleeps unknown to us in nearly all of our bosoms. I have too much confidence in you, too much confidence in human nature, to believe that can affect my client. Now, gentlemen, there is no pretense. There is no evidence that every subcontractor did not get the percent mentioned in his subcontract, except one, and that was Mr. French, on the route from Kiani to Kent, and the evidence there is that Miner settled with him, I believe, and gave him a certain amount of money in lieu of expedition. That is the solitary exception. This ends Chapter 4, Part 18 of 24.